0: Pixie, how are we?
1: I'm doing all right. I've got a sleepy cat on my lap, keeping me warm. So it's great. <laughs> how about you?
0: I'm very good. So thank you so much for doing this. A massive congratulations on the, the TED Talk. I know we're talking about it all fair. If you haven't watched the TED Talk, guys, I'll put the link in the, in the write-up as well for you guys to head over to YouTube and watch it. That's an incredible achievement.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of hard work. It was very exciting very scary and mainly i'm just really happy that people like it considering how much work i put into it
0: well that's the most important thing when you kind of get reaped rewards afterwards pixie for who I knew, anyone who isn't aware of your work and your your social media and like it's a huge following and which is massive credit to yourself and you put out incredible information can you kind of give a little bit of background how you got kind of got into the field uh, and what made you kind of go down this route
1: I mean, in a nutshell, I got into nutrition because I was pissed off at all the misinformation and the absolutely stupid and misleading things that people were saying on the internet. So I was like, you know what, this makes me mad. Let's do something about it. So I started writing because I already had a platform on Instagram by this point, mainly because I was posting a lot of food pictures at this point. Um, But then I started writing about the wellness industry and the various claims that were often made misleading claims. And I realized that I was telling people not to listen to unqualified bloggers and I wasn't qualified. So I thought, shit, that's a bit hypocritical. Let's do something about that. So I very quickly applied to do a master's degree in nutrition. Um, I've that summer, I applied in July. I got accepted in August, and I started in September. It was a very quick decision, wow. and it turned out to be a very, very good decision because I have no regrets about it. It was absolutely the right thing, and uh, yeah, I've just taken it from there pretty much, but it all started with anger and frustration.
0: You mentioned there about kind of the anger and frustration, about some of the information that's being given out. Was the main one the topic of the TED Talk?
1: Yeah, I guess the idea of there being no such thing as a good or bad food, that's, I suppose, a kind of umbrella for a lot of the misinformation that's there. And a lot of the questions that I get from people, namely, is insert food here bad for me? It's this very kind of black and white narrative around food. So I think a lot of the misinformation fits into that, into that kind of umbrella of this is a bad food, this is a good food. And a lot of the, a lot of the diet industry, a lot of the wellness industry very much feeds into that. I think, but there's also like really specific things that I was getting annoyed at, like people saying that if you, if you eat chlorophyll, it's going to oxygenate your blood, which is really problematic because no, if your, if your blood is exposed to sunlight, you have bigger problems, namely, you're probably about to die. So that's not particularly great. Things like dairy, leeches, calcium from your bones. But again, all of that does really fit under the idea of good and bad food. So yeah, I guess so. Nice yeah. segue.
0: why do you think it's such a common myth do you think that it's kind of the media's fault do you think it's a lack of education from people or do you think that people can get sucked into marketing really easily or do you think it's all of the above
1: i think it's people taking advantage of the way our brains naturally work exploiting that because we like simple answers. We really like things to be very black and white. It's why as kids, we love fairy tales. There is the hero, there's the villain. There's no complexity, there's no nuance there. It's just very, very straightforward. In the same way, we like a villain with food and we like a food hero at the same time. We like the idea of good and bad foods. And it just seems so simple. If you just eat this food, you'll be healthy. If you just avoid this food, you will be healthy. That's a wonderfully simple narrative that I think is so much more appealing than the actual reality of the complexity of food and health, even though it's, yeah, it's definitely not true. And I think there are a significant number of people who are either drawn in by that and then preach that as well, or are taking advantage of the fact that our brains work that way and are sharing these messages and profiting off of them very effectively because, you know, money.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, the supplement companies and a lot of people are kind of like promoting certain types of diets. I'm not even going to mention the names of them uh, because they don't deserve the airtime. Um, There's just too
1: many to choose from as well. There's just too many. There's
0: too many. And it's funny on consultations and stuff that when you're talking to people, it's like they've tried them all. But then they, people still tend to like I've, I've done stupid stuff I've, and I'm not sitting here on an ivory tower. Like I've done stupid, stupid stuff. But it's why do people keep going back to them? Is it because it's just so easy to kind of go an extreme rather than trying to look at the, the, the bigger picture of internal and building the habits and the behaviors, all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, it's just so easy. I mean, if you tell someone, all you have to do is cut out gluten, there's no follow-up questions. It's just, okay, cut out gluten. It's, it's that straightforward. But if you're talking about maybe get plenty of fruits and vegetables. Okay. How many fruits, how many vegetables, what counts as a portion? How do I know if it's one portion? Does it matter if it's cooked or if it's raw? Like what is the ratio of fruits and vegetables that we're looking for? What if they're all fruit? Is that okay? What if I go over? What if I go under? So many follow-up questions. It just, it becomes so much more complex. We don't like that. So we go to the very simple things because it's so wonderfully straightforward. You don't need to really ask any follow-up questions. And the marketing is very effective and very easy to do. And there's always that that hope. What if this next thing, what if this thing is actually the answer? The previous ones, they were not but maybe this next one, maybe it is. And we cling to that hope desperately. Understandably so, I think.
0: What can we do to protect the next generation?
1: Ooh. I don't think it's going to be easy to do. I think that we need better scientific literacy in schools and media training in schools. So people understand that what is said in the media and social media isn't automatically always trustworthy and completely objective and that it's worth being sceptical. I think not necessarily critical thinking, but a bit of scepticism and just preparing people a little bit more for what the world is going to throw at them is probably going to help. I think the way that we teach kids around food and nutrition in schools is also very simplistic. I mean, I'm going by my own memory of what I was taught, which is these are healthy foods. These are unhealthy foods. Don't eat too much. Don't eat too little because both of those are ugly. That was pretty much the extent of what I was taught in school about nutrition. And that's just, that's not good enough in my eyes.
0: Yeah, like I, I did. I only did home ec for maybe a year, but like I don't really remember it being taught anything regarding what particular food groups or what they do, the impact of it was like right. Go make a cake. Go bake a lasagna. Go go for a spag ball or whatever it may be. There's nothing wrong with that, but like I was at 16 years of age at that point, and you're kind of like, well. I'm going towards adulthood and I still don't know what these kind of foods are. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of like getting bogged down with social media as well and the fact that uh, kind of particularly the teens are kind of like there's more airtime now that that understand what's happening now. People are looking at particular Influencers or looking at body types and stuff, and they're kind of like, why can't, "Why can't I'm going to eat like these, so I'll look like these?" And unfortunately, that's not the case. I know I, I'm not sure if it's been passed yet, but there was some regulation being brought in in the UK about kind of having to declare uh, if you've altered your photo. I'm not sure if it's 100 percent from.
1: Ooh, I mean that needs to be a thing for I, sure. I, How I, are they going to implement that in reality, though? So to put a tricky. water, you
0: have to put a watermark on your photo if it's been altered. Mm. Ah. I think because I think you guys have a minister for mental health. Maybe I think, I think it's the guy from Love Island. I think it's Cameron from Love Island is now the minister for mental health or he's something to do with mental health. Oh,
1: you mean Alex George, Dr. Alex George from Love Island. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I remember seeing that. I'm so out of the loop with so much of these I things. Only because saw because like I am literally all I'm reading at the moment is Carl Rogers and occasional other psychotherapy texts i'm so out of the loop with all of these things
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I i i had a conversation uh, previously with one of the previous guests and, and she was saying that there was, there was trying to pass a bill to to put the watermark on so people can declare so that they're not um selling gimmicks or they're not trying to just like or they've kind of sucked in their stomach or they've completely cropped or whatever they're trying to do i think that's a huge important part of it as well and even learning how to like read a label of a food could be something else and more information on the label that isn't hiding certain elements as well could be huge because i i know myself like if if i brought even my my dad's to the shop to kind of uh him i'm making sense so old having to bring him to the shop but if he was going to the shop and he was looking at a label he wouldn't necessarily understand what certain elements of it are mm-hmm. and he wouldn't mm-hmm. understand some of the ingredients i think that's a huge element of it as well not that you have to understand every single ingredient
1: yeah and recognizing that just because you can't recognize or pronounce something doesn't make it inherently evil I was it's actually bring probably that up. <laughs> it's actually probably just something that's completely benign and actually functional yeah because okay. that just that does tend to be the case and i mean as a as a scientist with two science degrees i i can recognize and pronounce a lot of these things and it's i, I know that they are they are totally fine but i think there's so much fear mongering around this idea that if it's if, it, if you can't pronounce it it must be dodgy and yet it's always those same people who pronounce quinoa as quinoa so they can't even take their own advice can they
0: i was i i yeah i i when people say certain words or i think in the uk you say scone we say scone it's like
1: i that's a dangerous debate to get into <laughs>
0: I don't even know what the proper pronunciation is. Uh, Depends where you are. Yeah, um, the whole thing with kind of like it's a very very weird time, and like lockdown has had a massive impact on people's relationship with themselves, food, Um, and it's definitely like I can definitely see it from clients that have no problem in pushing people to write towards the proper directions with dietitians and stuff. Why do you think so many people have struggled with this element? I know it, it could be a variety of different factors, but what are the most common ones you're seeing? from working with clients on a daily basis?
1: In lockdown specifically, I think a lot of people's various coping mechanisms and support systems have been taken away. And that's pretty tough. I think for a lot of people, the fact that they they feel restricted in terms of what they can do and what they can therefore find in terms of food sometimes... In terms of movement, that is quite tricky for people, I think, or has been quite difficult. Not being able to see people. I mean, as humans, we, we need contact with other humans in order to thrive. And that has been so tough for so many people to not have that. There's also just so much uncertainty. And we as humans do not do very well with uncertainty. We find it very difficult. We want things to be nice and straightforward, nice and simple and relatively certain. humans, As humans, we're more likely to stay in a position of shitty certainty than potentially better uncertainty. Like We would rather stay in a shitty situation because at least we know what to expect with that. It's why, for example, a lot of people don't end up leaving bad relationships because there's a possibility it could be better out- outside of it. But I don't know. And that, I don't know, is scary for a lot of people. And in in terms of the pandemic, you know, we we just haven't known exactly when lockdown's going to lift because it's been shifted many times. We've been told, after this, we'll have freedom, only then to have another lockdown, which, you know, whether or not they're necessary is not an argument I'm going to get into because that's going to open a whole can of worms. But the fact is, that is what has happened. And I think it's led to a lot of hopelessness in people as well. What I've found, especially in since 2021 is that that sense of hope that a lot of people have had around just hold on a little bit longer and it'll be fine has faded considerably and that has made it so much harder for people to actually look after themselves well because it's just you know what's the point it's all shit anyway so there's there's a lot there's a lot in terms of what lockdown and the pandemic has done and uncertainty is a big part of that. And lack of coping mechanisms and support has been another big part of that, I think.
0: What are the main kind of coping mechanisms you've brought in for yourself and your clients for for kind of coping with the, with the elements of the whole weird situation we're in? Mm,
1: well, I live alone, so I got a cat <laughs> to have some company. And I talk to her as if she's human. We have full-on conversations. And that gives me some human contact, well not human, some, <laughs> wow, I'm really personifying her as my child here. Um, that gives me some kind of contact and cuddles, which is just lovely. Just, it's just really, really lovely. Um, for, for my clients in particular, we've talked about things like actually that food as a coping mechanism is not a terrible thing yeah. and that a little bit of that is totally fine and actually really, really helpful and not something to eliminate because it's one of the few things that we do have right now is that we have comfort food and we have we do have takeaways and those are wonderful things sometimes Uh, otherwise it's for some people it's finding movement they can do at home that works for them for some people it's accountability in terms of finding a walking buddy for example it's super cliche but like there's a bit of journaling a bit of mindfulness but more importantly it's Finding a boundary between work and non-work, especially if people are working from home for the first time, like can, in for a longer period of time than hard. they ever have. Before. Yeah, it's really hard. So actually finding a kind of way of, of creating a boundary there. And that could be something as simple as changing your clothes, um, putting your laptop in a different room to your bedroom if you can, or just simply, if, if it's all in the same room, face a direction that isn't your bed when you work. So you have at least the illusion of working in a different space or just anything that can create some kind of boundary. And also saying no a lot more to things, especially because I've noticed that a lot of my clients have said that people are expecting them to work and reply to emails at all hours. Just because you're at home means you have access to everything and you can work. It's like, no, absolutely not. And so learning to say no a lot better has also been something I've spoken about with a lot of people. It's the it's the best kind of self-care and looking after yourself, boundaries and saying no. So much more effective than journaling. Although journaling is great, don't get me wrong.
0: <laughs> well, journaling is journaling's huge and I'm a huge advocate of it. Um, but the, the, I think you mentioned there about saying no. I think a lot of people are, because of what's going on and there's so much uncertainty about jobs and stuff, people are afraid that if they say no to the powers that be, it could be like, right, you're next, if you know what I mean. So it, it it's kind mm. of a, it's kind of like it's a fine line for, for a lot of people. You've spoken about self-care. What does self-care mean to you and what little things have you brought in for yourself? I know you brought in the cat, which just chews your wires. Um, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> I love her, but she's an asshole sometimes. <laughs>
0: what, what does self-care, what does the term self-care mean to you?
1: To me, self-care means looking after myself Listening to what my body is telling me about what it needs and responding to it, not beating myself up for having to make accommodations or adaptations in in the way that I'm living my life and what I need, and yeah, just really treating myself with the respect that I know I deserve because I know my own self worth. It's not like just like having a bubble bath with candles. It's actually the fundamentals of. I believe I have worth and I'm deserving of respect, and so that's how I'm going to treat myself with that in mind. Hey. And so the kind—sorry, go ahead. I mean, the kind of things that I've been doing in relation to that is I've said no to a lot of things in this pandemic, partly because I'm one of the few people who's actually work whose workload increased because of it. I think because of the kind of work that I do, but I've said no to a lot of things i've uh, turned a lot of zoom calls into phone calls because i just cannot bear staring at a screen for another hour yesterday i did nine thirty till 7 on zoom with with two short breaks it's, it's just exhausting it's it's not fun online deliveries loads of online deliveries things to look forward to uh, what else? I got myself a place with a garden, which I know is a huge privilege and not a small That's thing massive, at all, yeah. because I was like, I need this. I hired someone to work with me because I just had too much to do. And I was saying no to things, And there were which I, which I was fine with. But also I recognized that I was overstretching myself. I love the quote from Lord of the Rings, like butter scraped over too much bread. That's very much... I just love that. I think it's just, it's so perfect. I felt a lot of that. And so I brought someone on to work with me to, to help with that. I started journaling. Never thought I'd be a journaling person, but I've started doing that. How do you find Oh it? my God. Oh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm really liking it. <laughs> it's,
0: it. It takes a while to get used to.
1: Oh, not for me. I was like, I'm going to fucking do this. I'm going <laughs> to do it now. I'm, I'm very determined and I just got myself a one line a day journal which I do which I have in bed with me which is just really great I've also set greater limits on my screen time on my phone so I'm not my phone stops me from going on Instagram if I spend more than an hour and a half on social media so there's there's that and my laptop never enters my bedroom anymore never
0: that's huge it's that's- just not gonna happen that's huge. What did you? Did, are you using Freedom for your phone, or are you using a different app?
1: Oh no, I'm just. It's. A, I'm just using the screen limits.
0: Oh, the screen limits
1: okay. on iPhones. On on the iPhone, it's really straightforward.
0: You mentioned kind of like about kind of um, extremes in the industry, and you recommended extremes in nutrition. And one of the kind of things that a lot of people. Are finding or can say, and this is a loaded question. I even wrote this in the question, sending it over to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so be prepared for a rant. Um, Is sugar addiction a thing?
1: No, no, it's not. Uh, Look, I recognise that sometimes food can feel addictive. Can you can feel like you are addicted to food? But food cannot really be addictive because you need it to live. It's like saying we're addicted to oxygen. I mean, kind of, I guess. If you want to be really fussy about it, I guess we're addicted to oxygen. I mean, what happens if you stop breathing? You get withdrawal symptoms. You want to keep breathing. So also there's the argument that oxygen is slowly killing us over the course of about 80 years, which is an argument I thoroughly enjoy because I find death anxiety a very interesting subject. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Sugar is not addictive, right? And the research on this is primarily focused on rats. And firstly, we always need to be very wary of extrapolating any research on animals to humans. That's not to say that the research isn't valid, but we have to be very wary because we are different creatures and that absolutely does play a role and it does it does matter. So we have to be careful with that. The research on rats has also focused on starving rats for extended periods of time and then giving them access to sugar and seeing what happens. When you give rats r- regular access to things like sugar, you don't see any addictive behavior. But it's only when they are starved or severely restricted and then offered it, they go nuts on it because they're hungry. What do you expect is going to happen when you starve someone? Like They're going to eat a lot because that's a basic biological response that we have. There was also that, that wonderful research that gave rats sugar and cocaine, and the rats went for the sugar rather than the cocaine, which then led to the headlines that sugar is more addictive than cocaine. No, the rats were starved. They were hungry. What a surprise. They went for the substance that gives them actual energy rather than just makes them a little bit happy and high. Like, maybe rats get a come down from cocaine too. Maybe they actually just have a basic biological drive towards foods that actually provide energy. All of that would make far more sense than the idea that sugar is more addictive than cocaine. Also, I mean, when was the last time you actually saw someone just spooning pure sugar from a bag into their mouth? It's not something that happens very often because sugar by itself is fine, but we struggle to eat a lot of it in a short space of time. However, you you pair sugar together with fat and starch, ooh that is tasty stuff. As humans, we love that. I mean, donuts. Okay, say no more. We as humans, we love those foods. But again, it's not because they're addictive. It's because it is the perfect package of, of energy density, which we are through our kind of evolutionary process are driven towards because it's the most effective and quickest way of keeping us alive. If we, feel, if our bodies feel that we are struggling to get enough food which if you are in any kind of restriction that can that can be the case not always but it can be the case so it's not that it's addictive it's just that we are wired through evolution and our basic biology to find these foods particularly appealing because they keep us alive for longer (laughs) compared to starvation in particular
0: yeah starvation doesn't sound like a crack um but you meant like with sugars and stuff like that. I don't like because what hap- what can come in on questions sometimes is worrying about the amount of sugar that's in fruit, and that's kind of when people can get bogged down and on that side of things and like sweating the small stuff when there's kind of bigger elements mm-hmm. at play. How do you kind of educate people on on that side of things? Like, do you would you send a client a paper or would you kind of say right? this is X, Y, and Z, this is how X, Y, and Z works, or would it be kind of like, this is just a straight fact, or would it depend?
1: It depends. I mean, it makes me so sad, the idea that people are afraid of eating something like fruit. It's, oh, I mean, what is the world coming to when people are afraid of eating fruit? It's, oh, God, it's so depressing. If you spend too much time thinking about it, it makes you just never want to do this ever again. So let's not dwell. Um, The way that I kind of work with it with clients, it very much depends on what's going on for that client and what the kind of background is. So I don't tend to send a lot of papers because the language tends to be quite inaccessible. And actually, I've generally found that people don't always find that very helpful. If they want a paper, they will ask specifically for a paper. But otherwise, they kind of just want me to talk them through it. And often before I talk them through it, I will ask them, what is going on here for you? What do you think is going to happen? Where has this come from? What is the actual fear that is driving this? Because it's not a fear of fruit. It's a fear of either what the fruit will do to someone's body or what it will do to someone's health. What is actually go- really going on there That is that is the underlying driving fear? And can we understand that a bit better? Because sometimes it's it's seen as a rational fear because someone's read something that they perceive as very rational so therefore they avoid a food which feels very logical to them but often it's actually not a rational logical decision it's based on an emotional driver of a fear that actually is at its core largely irrational and so if if someone's fear is largely irrational and emotional i Don't think that logic is the only way out of that because logic didn't get you into it. Logic is not going to be enough to get you out of it. It can be part of the puzzle piece, but it's not enough. I generally find not always.
0: I love that that last sentence that you said there. logic didn't get you in there. So it's not going to get you out. I I really, really like that. Um, The thing that kind of comes in with kind of extreme diets um, is there's a new one on the sale. It's been around for a while, but it seems to get more press now because people are bored and they're reading social media, everything in relation to uh, eating for a blood type. If I had hair, we pulled out by now, with these stupid things. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, I understand. <laughs> is eating for blood type a
1: thing? Absolutely fucking not.
0: It's Where does it come from?
1: Uh, some dude probably just decided one day, you know what? I know a new way we could fuck people over. You know how people have different blood types? What if we tell people to eat differently according to their blood type? Ooh, that's a good one. It's very straightforward. People are going to, it sounds vaguely science because blood type is a real thing. People are going to eat that up. And this dude was right. Um, I don't think there's anything, there's nothing in it whatsoever. I've had people ask me, do you have any research on this? My response is, no one's going to give anybody money to research this because when things because research costs money and when things are so stupid that the answer is just no are you high <laughs> then no one's going to pay you to research it either because it's so obviously not a thing i mean i say that okay i realize that can sound quite condescending it to me it feels that way because i have two science yeah. degrees right i fully recognize that if you don't have that it sounds very science it is totally compelling it's like the alkaline diet and all of these things you take a basic kernel of what someone understands as being biological scientific something that sounds vaguely familiar from their gcse days or their o level days and you ex- and you expand that into something that becomes a total pile of nonsense but because it has that kernel of something that sounds very real and is real blood type is a real thing and eating according to internal different characteristics is actually a real thing because depending on your internal biology, you may need to eat slightly differently. So that is an actual thing, that humans have different internal systems that require different, different kinds of nutrients in different ways sometimes because humans are not a monolith. So it has this basic idea of something that makes sense, but... It then it just, but then it just is taken to a level where it's like what what are you smoking because no there is no relationship whatsoever between your blood type and what you should and shouldn't eat it's not a thing
0: I don't understand how they go down these routes of picking out these random things out of their head uh, yeah it's kind of like someone writing South Park it just goes down rabbit holes
1: yeah but I mean if you've read the the Angry Chef's first book I believe it's in the first book where at the end he introduces a new diet idea. And essentially he took the idea of, I think, like the number of chromosomes something has. And if it has fewer chromosomes than us, you can eat it. If it has more, you can't. And that's such a beautiful example of it's total bollocks. He made it up specifically to prove that it's bollocks. And and yet it's the exact same principle that so many of these various extreme diets are suggesting. You take something that is rooted in science and you take it to something that is totally extreme and unnecessary. But because it's got that grounding in science, we think it has some truth to it. It's really very effective marketing. It's, I mean, if I I remove myself from the ethics entirely, I'm like, that's actually really clever. But unfortunately I have ethics and morals, so I can't possibly condone it.
0: And that's why we have you on the podcast, because you have ethics (laughs) and morals. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the big things that's kind of Kind of out there at the minute, and I know it, it, it's a, in the media an awful lot. It's more; it seems to be more in the media over in the UK than over here in Ireland. Is regarding kind of weight stigma. It's it's not really helping kind of anyone at the minute. Like, what is weight stigma, and what can we tweak to kind of educate people on how to like understand understand this and kind of have, yeah, educate and sympathy and all that kind of stuff towards it? Because, like, it, it is happening, and like, there's there's a lot of people who are like overweight high risk for whatever's happening at the minute as well and diabetes and all that kind of stuff what can we do to tweak things for that in general like it's, i know it's a very open question but I'd be interested to hear from your point of view
1: yeah i'm probably not going to get this definition exactly right so apologies in advance if there's someone who studies weight stigma who's listening to this who's thinking that's not quite the right definition I forgot to Google it before I came on this podcast. So I'm oh, doing this cast, off memory.
0: You had to catch you on wires, so you're okay. Yes,
1: exactly. I was kind of busy. Um, <laughs> so weight stigma, as I understand it, is when someone is treated badly, someone, is, someone faces prejudice, someone faces difficulty, abuse, or just shitty behavior from others because of the way they look in terms of their weight. So when someone discriminates against someone because of their weight or treats them badly or makes assumptions and judgments or outright abuses someone because of their body weight, usually because they're in a larger body rather than a smaller one. It doesn't tend to be very skinny people. It tends to be against larger people. And what we know fundamentally fundamentally without a shadow of doubt from research is that when you are an asshole to people and you shame them, it makes them feel worse about themselves and it actually makes them unhealthier, both physically and mentally unhealthier. And it does not help people. There might be a tiny subset of the population who are thinking, but when someone shamed me, I got healthier. Good for you. You're in the vast minority. I'm happy for you, but please recognize your experience is unusual. For the vast majority of people, when you are treated like shit, it does not make you want to pursue health. It makes you feel crap about yourself. And we know that when people don't feel good about themselves, when people have a low sense of self-worth, when people feel that they are just not worthy, they don't treat themselves as if they are worthy. If you think that you're a pile of shit, you're not exactly going to be in a position where you're inspired to eat plenty of fruits and vegetables, move your body on a regular basis, manage your stress, because you don't think you're worth it. So I think it's so important to actually make people think that they are worth it, that they are worthy and worthy of respect as human beings at whatever size they are, because that puts people in a better position to actually look after themselves in a way that we kind of want people to. As healthcare professionals, obviously, we kind of want people to look after themselves and to pursue health. That's why we're healthcare professionals. We can't do that whilst also making people feel worthless because all the research says it makes them mentally feel worse, increases their stress levels, actually increases their risk of dying in the near future. So not particularly great. And it doesn't lead people to pursue health behaviors like eating a wide variety of few foods, moving, getting regular sleep, managing their stress, all of these kinds of things. So it's really one of the most unhelpful things that we can do to people.
0: Do you feel it's going to improve anytime soon? Or do you feel that, like from experience and working with clients, even in, like you, you've mentioned there that we're health healthcare professionals, but it can't help ha- happen in healthcare scenarios in that if someone goes in and they're severely overweight and they're like, Oh, it's self-induced, like just go away. Like they're, it's, they're no problem. Or else if someone is like, they may have to go to a separate hospital. So one of the guests I was on recently had to go to a separate hospital in order to mm-hmm. get certain scans done on her body. She had to go to where animals have to go when All she was right. at her heaviest. And that's, a stigma attached to itself. You're too big yeah, for this. Yeah, it's degrading. Thing. Yeah, exactly. And I can understand whether, the, the, do you think it's going to change anytime soon or do you think that the stigma is still there even amongst society, but also with kind of the medical professionals as well?
1: I think it, I, I have some hope that slowly, but surely, far more slowly than I would like it to, it's going to shift because it, it is shifting a little bit. There are more, healthcare professionals, especially medical professionals speaking about this, listening to people who have experience of weight stigma and what it's done to them. There are more stories being shared online in particular around this. And there is a greater awareness. And we know that doctors are more likely to listen to other doctors. And so we, the fact that there are some doctors with large platforms discussing this is hopefully going to start slowly making a difference I think it gradually is not anywhere near fast enough. But I also think people need to have an honest conversation with themselves because if, after, if you have been told and you know that shaming people and blaming people in this way actually leads to worse health outcomes and you're still doing it, you need to ask yourself why. Because if you are still doing it after knowing this and reading the research and understanding that, you're not actually interested in people's health. You just think people don't look nice and therefore you think you can treat them badly. And that makes you an asshole in my eyes.
0: Do you think it's going to change?
1: Slowly, very slowly, not enough. Not enough, not quick enough.
0: It's it's because there's so many people out there like, I know the body confidence movement is out there as well. And people are putting their own insecurities onto people. If they're looking and they're kind of saying, oh, this person has like, I don't know, skin rolls or whatever. Maybe and skin rolls are completely normal, by the way. Like I'm sitting here right now and I can pinch it or whatever it may be. But people are, because we've been predisposed to extremes for so long, like it's gone from the likes of Marilyn Monroe. It's gone from the likes of, say, uh, Kate Moss. It's gone Mm. to Naomi Campbell. It's gone to this extreme now where it's kind of like quasi-glutes. We keep Mm. matching onto these extremes and putting our own biases onto them. I hope it changes. I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, realistically. Yeah. Isn't
1: it kind of messed up that bodies become fashionable? Bodies go in and out of fashion. I mean, that's... When you really think about it... It's
0: like it's an ornament.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's exactly it. It's like it's just something to be looked at. It's not something functional. It's not something that is an incredible vessel and vehicle for you to do amazing things in life. It's just a pretty shiny thing. Look at it. Isn't it shiny and pretty? And isn't it nice and small?
0: And then what a lot of people have tended to do is because I look good out external, it sometimes can look Shit, internal, and like for the likes of HA and losing cycles, all that kind of stuff, that can be a detrimental health factor going down the line. So,
1: yeah. I think
0: you have to look a hell of a lot of internal as well as external as to why you potentially are putting your own insecurities onto someone, but you also have to look at yourself and say, right what what can I do to improve my own health and kind of not going for these extremes trying to find a balance but these words don't sell like if I was to put up an ad right now and say here's a balanced diet I can change your habits and whatever it's not going to sell but I can make you lose six kg yesterday that's going (laughs) to sell
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely it is because I mean and it makes it. I totally get why people want that because sometimes it does improve health and all but Pretty much 100% of the time, the world will treat you better. That's pretty much guaranteed. If you are smaller, the world will treat you better. No wonder people want to do it. it. makes total sense. If you think to yourself, if I do this one thing, people are going to be nicer to me and treat me with more respect and listen to what I have to say, wouldn't you do it too? And
0: I've seen it first time because I used to work in recruitment. So when we used to have candidates coming in, the person would be judged by the other people. But like, who's that person, X, Y, and Z, and make the comments? And then then that person would go off in the interview and shock, even though that person was more than qualified, they may just not look healthy, or they may be healthy, but whatever it may be. But because they look a certain way, they didn't get it. And it's the same thing, Like there's even research like more attractive people get job promotions, more attractive people are more successful, all this kind of stuff. So it does go from that extreme to like the overweight yeah. side of things to the, the aesthetic side of things as well.
1: It does because once again, we come back to this very black and white idea. We think that if someone looks good, it means they are also a good person, that they are probably good at what they do. And we kind of shroud them in a halo of goodness. And if we think that someone looks quote unquote bad, we probably think that they are a bad person and that they are bad at their job. Because it's nice and simple that way, because it's either all good or all bad. And that makes it nice and straightforward for us, even though that's not how it works.
0: And then the negative, le- negative labels, like, oh, they're, they're lazy. They, they just don't want to move, all this kind of stuff. It, I
1: don't of- believe laziness is a thing. I don't believe it's a real thing. I think laziness is a myth and a way to make people feel crap.
0: That's an interesting, that's a rabbit hole. That's a very big rabbit hole. But I, I don't know. I think, I think everyone has a choice in what they want to do. It's just p- p- having, the, having the internal aspect and having the internal why of being able to do something, I think, is a huge element to it. D- a lot of people, when they t- tend to go on like weight loss journeys, they're like, I want to lose weight. But they don't understand necessarily, are they losing weight to look normal, to in inverted commas, to, um, to society, or are they doing it because they want to be there for their kids? Are they doing it for an actual internal why? A lot of people, mm. w- when you start digging down a little bit deeper into why people are doing things, they, d- they get a little bit, they can get a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. And it, yeah. and it, it's, not nice, it's not nice to see. Um,
1: no, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, with what you're saying about choice, I think up to a point there is choice. And I think we have to be so much more aware than we currently are of the barriers that are in people's way that are preventing people from doing the things that they want to be doing and that there are usually very good reasons why people either struggle with something, can't do something, or find it hard. And if we can understand what those barriers are, we can actually probably do a better job of helping someone, and we're more likely to have compassion for them because we have a greater understanding of what's holding them back.
0: And we also have to take it into uh, into effect, kind of like mental health has a huge element. There's a lot of people struggling right now with kind of depression and stuff like that, and from having, from ha- having had it before um, and suffer from it, when you're in that headspace, if anyone says something to you, you're you're not going to get up. It doesn't matter what's going to be said. It's just, it's very hard to describe it. And I remember the conversation trying to sell to my best mate, like what, what if I was looking at something that's blue, it was grey to me. It was so hard to, to decipher. And it's very hard to describe it that when you're in that headspace, it's very hard to, to get out of it. But I think that's a very, very different episode. Um, Bixi, cannot thank you enough. Like there's so much there um, for people. And I would highly recommend for people to listen to the podcast that you do um, with Dr. Nikki Stamp, who's incredible as well. Uh, listen to the TED Talk, uh, watch the TED Talk, stick it up on uh, your smart TV when you're chilling at home. It's it's incredible. Where can people find out about yourself? Where can people find out about the amazing books that you've written? The four amazing books: Insta Food Diet, No Need to Diet book as well. There's another two as well. Where can people find out about those?
1: So on social media, I am at Pixie Nutrition on all the things, although generally you'll find me primarily on Instagram. Twitter is a cesspool. I tend to avoid it nowadays. (laughs) And Facebook is just kind of a thing where everyone around me is announcing they're engaged and I'm a bit bored of it, to be honest. So mainly I'm on Instagram. Um, My books you can find pretty much anywhere online online. The usual places Uh, for international, you can find on Book Depository with free international shipping. So that's an option. My TEDx talk is on YouTube. And if you are interested in kind of exploring the possibility of working with me, you can find all of that through my Instagram link in bio stuff, as well as my website. Just Google me. That's the easiest way. Just Google my name. It will come up.
0: It will come up. Um, so yeah, I will put, put all your information into the, the bio in the podcast. Guys, if you want to check out Pixie and work with Pixie, please do just click the link and try to uh, get a call in with Pixie and stuff like that. Pixie, I cannot thank you enough for so much of your time. And uh, I think it sounds like the cast settled down.
1: She's asleep. She is asleep. She has not chewed through these headphones. So I Accessible. call this a resounding success.
0: Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been great.